Hi, everybody. Today is March 6, 2023, and I'm thrilled and honored to be with Gabrielle Bauer, uh, who's a writer in Toronto. Um, and uh, she has a book, Blindsight is 2020. I'm going to uh, let us, uh, I'm going to let her tell us a little bit about herself and, and what the book is about and how she uh, was inspired. Um, hi, uh, uh, Randall. Very honored to be on your show. Um, as you said, I'm a writer from Toronto, um, health and medical writer is my specialty. It's still snowy here. Um, so looking forward to the end of that. And uh, yes, um, I wrote this book, Blindsight is 2020, about the pandemic that was recently published by the Brownstone Institute and will be published later this year in Spanish. That's lovely. That's great. Um, I have a book we're going to talk about a little bit later. It's called Overturning Zika. Mm -hmm hoping to overturn Zika, <laughs> disappeared um, uh, without a trace, pretty much, as, as a cause of microcephaly. Zika exists. It's a, yeah. a mini dengue, um, but I don't want to burden us with that. But it's, it's actually coming out in Brazil on the next couple of weeks. So uh, I've been through some of the translation parts. and uh, Oh, it's very a, nice. An adventure. But I, I assume you, you have a long publishing uh, history, and you, uh, I, I was looking on your, your web page, and um, you have kind of an experience in writing a variety of topics. So can you maybe tell us a little bit about your writer's journey and how you arrived at this topic? Uh, my writer's journey, I kind of got in through the back door. Um, I went to Japan in my 30s and had some amazing experiences and wrote a book about it called Tokyo My Everest. And um, that is how I got into writing. Um, I'd been doing other things before that. And one thing led to another. I started to work with a um, medical publisher and I made some contacts there, went freelance and um, started writing mainstream um, health articles and articles on other topics uh, for the mainstream media and as well as medical writing for healthcare professionals, uh, various materials, meeting reports, um, slide decks, uh, educational programs and so forth, what medical writers do. And then COVID came along. And um, this thing, COVID, COVID. <laughs> that's right. That yeah, was, some people say like it's a virus. No, it's a, yeah, it's COVID came along and um, I, I reacted very intensely and, and viscerally to what was going on. The whole, not just the measures, but the COVID culture. There was this new culture forming around me that was highly distasteful and at the time i couldn't quite put my finger on why um, i just knew that i had an instinctive recoil against it and I, I sought to understand that so i started reading articles i started connecting with people online um, and i began to see that there was a whole community of smart people who like me had misgivings about this whole thing um, you know people had different kinds of misgivings. Some people were concerned about the origin of the virus. Other people were concerned about, um, you know, the suppression of early treatments. And other people like me were primarily concerned with the social phenomenon that I saw going on around me. Um, just the, the level of fear that was both being manufactured by the media and perpetuated by the people, um, the level of coercion, of shaming, I mean, if I told you some of the 
you know, insults that were hurled at me online, just for the daring to question some of these things. It, it, it was just way over the top. And um, so I just felt compelled to to gather all these, you know, the, these links and articles and quotes and everything that I was collecting. And I didn't know where it would lead for the longest time. Uh, I started writing articles uh, about the pandemic, uh, especially, as I said, my primary interest, the psychology, the sociology, the ethics, the philosophy of it. And um, so I wrote, I think, to date about 28 of these essays for various outlets, some of them mainstream, some of them more um, alternative. And um, one of them was the Brownstone Institute. And I started to get to know Jeffrey Tucker, the, uh, the founder. And at, at some point, it just felt organically to me like I wanted to put all these ideas together um, in a book format. And I prepared a proposal for Jeffrey, which he accepted. And that's how the book came yeah. to be. Yeah, and I was fortunate enough to meet uh, Jeffrey last month um, in Hartford for the first time. And I, mm. I published a piece uh, on Zika, <clears throat> um, and he was uh, gracious enough to accept it. Um, I had written it, that is, and <clears throat> he's an amazing man, um, mm -hmm. and a uh, man of principle. Yeah. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, a, a genuine intellectual. I mean, intellectual is <clears throat> a funny thing. I always admired them. When I went to college, I'm like, oh, I want to be one of those. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I, I had kind of pre-decided to be uh, a doctor, so I was a pre-med, and I guess that was pre-meditated. Uh, <laughs> I'll just, I just never, never thought of that joke before, but, <laughs> but, you know, I think he's been disappointed with, I, I believe he's a libertarian, he's an economist, um, yeah. and he's been disappointed with his bunch, and, you know, of, of libertarians who yeah. um, pro, 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 profess for liberty. Mm. Um, so I'm wondering what, what's uh, kind of your, uh, I guess philosophy going in and mm -hmm. and and how you, you, you kind of had some epithets or names thrown at you uh, with those people, you know, or, or kind of online people. Um, and how did that play out? Um, so so I guess the basic question is, um, what is the intellectual stream from which you mm -hmm. came and mm -hmm. where is the which is the one in which you find yourself? Right. Um, so. I guess I probably came from a somewhat left-leaning stream. Um, although I always had, you know, some questions about some of the tenets uh, of leftism, especially far leftism, but I would say that I would position, I, I positioned myself somewhat left of center. Um, and in some ways I still do, like in terms of universal healthcare and some kind of support for basic living, I, I believe in those principles. But during the pandemic, I, like many others that I've met and talked to, uh, found myself increasingly disenfranchised and increasingly disappointed, deeply, deeply disappointed in the left. Um, in the left's wholesale abandonment of freedoms of, of, of principles of freedom and refusal to discuss them and um, caricaturing, dumbing down those principles, you know, with words like freedom, D-U-M-B, and mocking the very idea, the noble ideal 
of freedom, which really gives life a lot of its value and meaning in my experience and estimation. So this wholesale mockery of freedom was very disappointing to me. And also this, this reduction of freedom to, oh, you just want to go and have, you know, a sandwich at Arby's or you just want to go get your hair done. Again, this, this, this reduction of this, you know, vast principle of freedom uh, to something comical and worthy of derision. Uh, so I, I thought a lot about those things and I, you know, read and connected with other people who had similar views and were similarly disappointed in how the left handled um, the whole idea of freedom. That includes the ACLU. Uh, I don't know if you followed the ACLU's position on it over the um, the months and years. Yeah, I, I, I was, a, I paid money to the ACLU back in the day, probably my my young uh, self and then this is like uh, I don't know if it was a chrysalis or whatever but I kind of um, climbed out of that self some time ago um, and I, <laughs> I think that um, you know it's it's always I mean I, I don't want to get pseudo Freudian here but you know there's a lot of projection um, mm. happening where people uh, you know kind of accuse the others of that which they themselves right. portray right. and and so this um, you know, I'll, for a long time, you know, of the left, they they make fun of of Christians or um, or religious people. Um, mm -hmm. and, you know, kind of comparing them to the fundamentalist sects we see in the Middle East and, and beyond, and you know, the, the middle of, of Asia, mid Asia. Um, <clears throat> and you know, if we're going to do the free dumb, I mean, it's there's fun dumb mentalism i suppose that would work out fun dumb mentalism <laughs> right. um, you know, I, I got premeditated i got two good yeah uh, that's right you're on a roll <laughs> something about you maybe bring it out i know you you like you're you're, you're an excellent wordsmith so i know uh, I'm, I'm trying to step up my game a little bit i guess um but that's a new one on me i guess um but you know that that is what happened fun dumb mental mm. it's like they took away fun and, and uh, yeah, yeah. In this in this safetyism approach mm -hmm. of, of and, and literally, you know, sand, putting sand on, on skate parks, you know, having people, you know, not be able to swim by themselves in the ocean. Um, I don't know. The, 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 anyway, so so let's get back to, to where you were, um, you know. So, yes, yeah, so I joined the ranks of the politically homeless, you know, which apparently is a rather large slice of the population now well, because that's, I, that's almost an oxymoron because if we form a community and <laughs> yeah well <laughs> i know we have we haven't really formed it yet and and yes what would we call the political party but um but yeah uh, you know because i i can't say that i fully align with so-called you know right-wing principles i probably align with some of them i'm, I'm fairly a conservative fiscally um, i don't believe in wholesale you know spend 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 mm -hmm. but um Again, so I, you know, I, in some ways I have a foot in both camps, but in other, in other ways I have a foot in neither camp. And I think that's the more accurate uh, characterization. Uh, I feel that neither philosophy really represents me. Uh, but good. certainly it's funny when you talk about freedom, I think freedom is something that a lot of us took for granted. Yeah. You know, it was just in the air. We live in a free society. And yes, of course, there were certain restrictions that were not overly onerous and and that that I accepted you know like people always make the comparison with seat belts well seat belts is just no big deal 
um, you know, or if I was told not to bring peanut butter to my kid's school. Um, again, not a big deal. But then when, when this assault on freedom, you know, really, really ramped up during COVID, I think that's when we discovered, not just me, but everyone, where we stood on this issue. And it was a, a real surprise to me in the first few weeks, a, a huge shock to discover that it seemed I didn't stand with the majority of people, at least at the time. Um, I'd always assumed that, you know, my views on freedom were kind of um, fairly average. And then to find out that other people were so willing and, and eager, it almost seemed, you know, to throw away all the freedoms in the service of this, you know, potentially greater safety without discussion, uh, without question, and not only without discussion question, but heaping scorn on anyone who um, had a different view. That right. that came as a big shock to me. It took me a long time to, to kind of metabolize that. And wow, I'm not, you know, other people are not as much like me as I thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was a moment when I was a kid, I remember being in the backseat of our car. And, and for a long time, I'd just taken whatever my mother said as, you know, <laughs> something I do. Yeah, right. And there was like a little prism through which, I don't know, whatever, a little apicus or, you know, mini calculator in my brain. It's like, well, she said this and this didn't work. You know, and I, I must have been a, you know, tiny little twerp. Now I'm a big twerp. But <laughs> at the time, you know, I, I'm probably guessing maybe seven or something like that. And, mm. and she said something. And, mm. and I was like, you know, I don't think that's it, you know, <laughs> right? Yes. but, you know, and, and of course she reacted in, in the, the right way, which is, you know, that is not your problem. Just you do what I say. Mm. And, and it's, I mean, it was a pleasant childhood, you know, from, from what I get, from what I hear about other people's, it was, you know, a pretty good childhood, all kind of stuff. And, and it doesn't mean I always got along. And, and that problem obviously uh, aggravated over time because, you know, you want your autonomy as you become an adult mm. and it's okay when your kid to be, you know, parented and, and told to shut up, I guess, and, you know, follow the rules and it's none of your business. So, but, but, you know, when you have agency and you're paying taxes and, and, uh, you know, theoretically those people in government are at your service, not vice versa. Mm -hmm. uh, and the word service can turn into servile or servant. Um, and, uh, you know, and then, you know, what is it? And again, I've, I've maintained right from the beginning that if, if this had been the zombie apocalypse or, um, you know, kind of aerosolized uh, uranium or, or Ebola or whatever, um, you know, then maybe maybe they had a point. But I think there were easily obtainable early data. Uh, Absolutely. China was, you know, purposely uh, opaque. Um, but from the, the Diamond Princess was out early. And then there were other studies, as you mentioned in your book. Um, that that led us to believe that this was not all that um right and you know i don't know about you i mean i'm 66 right now i was 63 when this started so i think i'm an outlier in my demographic you know everyone my age was just you know I, I'm, I'm, themselves I'm, fear, I'm, but but you know i actually there was a oh sorry um, i'm literally your age i was going to say we're cohorts okay um boomers so <clears throat> i entered my not that i was never scared because like you, I saw the early da uh, data uh, from the Diamond Princess, et cetera. But, you know, just, just to see, I entered my data into this um, COVID risk calculator, I think, that was developed at the time by Oxford University. And 
I'm fortunate enough to have no health issues or comorbidities or anything. So even though, despite my age, my risk came back, my risk of dying of COVID, if I got it, came back at one in 6,500. Mm-hmm. So I thought, those are pretty good odds. Not not worth losing yeah. sleep over. Now, obviously, there's other people around me. I wasn't just concerned about myself. But here I'm talking about my concern for my personal risk. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't wasn't the apocalypse that people were claiming it was. Yeah. No, and that I think they they lost kind of this gradation aspect. Um, yeah, you know they, they there's a, a, a joke about two data scientists. They walk down the street. They one says uh, to the other, says, "Hey, how you doing? You know, how are you?" And the other guy says, uh, "Compared to what?" <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and so you know there there has to be some stratification. Pretty much early on, um, I found this thing from France, which uh, talked about like how much how many virions. Uh, we're we're kind of coming out of your mouth based on you know people with COVID, but at different ages and different mm. body masses and different comorbidities. And basically, the, the, he came up with a, a multiplier, which is kind of your age times your BMI, and your, ah. your 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 bolus of your transmissibility increases as that product goes. Mm. So young people who are, who are slender were pretty much on the zero end. Ah, um, so interesting. Yeah, because they, they don't have that much lung, lung expansion, so they're not coming in and out of that much air. And they don't get mm-hmm. that sick, and they're not producing that much stuff. And they're mm-hmm. anyway, and and so it's not just BMI, but BMI kind of a co-runner with right other problems that go along, like diabetes and kind of Pickwickian syndrome. Maybe you're smoking on top of it, whatever. And so you know, experientially, you know, over time, you get more things happen to you, and you you yes. know, you I, I was I I want to give a, a kind of a warning to our listeners that you note in the book that people uh, do get more likely to die as they get older. So yeah, <laughs> no, I know I, this this is this is one of the things that that I had trouble wrapping my head around. It's like people wanted perfect risk equity. Well, you know, we're discriminating discriminating against the older people because they're at greater risk. Well, of course they're at greater risk. I mean, you know. This yeah. is this is life. Life begins and life ends. You know. I think it's a gracious thing for the elderly. I mean, I, they're, you know, if every right, they say that uh, everything falls into two categories: the things that fall into categories, and things that don't fall. Into right. <laughs> That's right. But, but I think there's two categories of the elderly: those that that understand, you know, look in the mirror and 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 say, well, you know, I get it. I, I don't want to die from this, but I don't want my kids never to mate, marry, meet, uh, greet. Exactly. You know, exactly. And so exactly. forth. I don't want. You know, I, I I understand that I got here because my parents sacrificed for me to a certain extent, and my grandparents are no longer here, and mm-hmm. I love them, and I'm the grandparent who needs to be, you know, grand as mm-hmm. I, you know, take on that role. And, yeah. you know, I think there's, a you know, kind of an interesting, you know, terminology of grandparent. I think it's not, we don't just call them old people. Um, and, and there is some, I mean, why do they pick grand? Why don't they just call second order? <laughs> you know, there has to be some grandeur about it. That, that, yeah. 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 And, you know, again, I think they fall into different categories. And and I think that there were some people, you know, I'm not sure it was necessarily the old people per se, but I think it was kind of a kind of a miscalculation or um, that, that to, to think that those lives, again, everyone's life is valuable. We literally had my mother-in-law uh, yeah. just recently passed from something else that she, you know, she was 92, at the, 91 at the time, uh, but she was with us for the duration of the last decade or or so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I, I'm not a granny killer. Yeah. You know, my kid's granny was living with us and we t- took very good care of her. And yeah. I always think that, but I, I, I've been called that. Yeah. Um, oh. and, and I just think it's kind of an, a, an amazing thing 
to you know to to not value the the the, the young lives and they need that freedom you know they need, actually need to be free and dumb as yeah. part of that freedom because that is an essential part of learning i mean i think you know we all look back and it's like oh my god i can't believe how stupid i was you know they they need the opportunity to be stupid they can't be roped in and caged in um you know like zoo, you know like a zoo frankly I, I agree so profoundly with what you have just said i mean you cannot imagine so profoundly and i think you are right this is a dividing line um and people you know you know we are living in this this age of outrage and if you dare I resent that, what you just said. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Cancel me. Cancel me. Um, so um, if you dare suggest that we should prioritize the young, there's going to be this whole flock of people, you know, oh, ageism and thisism and thatism. And whereas I think what you're talking about and what I felt keenly as well from the start is just a respect for the life cycle. And yes, I think... Most people who are parents, of course, they would sacrifice everything for their children. So, you know, why did this this idea, you know, get completely dismissed and thrown out the window? Nobody's talking about going and killing grannies, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but the idea that we don't throw young people under the bus in the not even in the certainty, but kind of in the hope of adding a few extra months or years to an old person's life, you know, that people got so outraged at this recognition of the rights of the life cycle and and respect for for youth and the next generation it, you know i again it, it just boggled my mind mm -hmm. and it, it was always it was so refreshing when i met because there are there's a large community of people like us who understand this well you deeply. did more than me so i want to kind of get back to your pathway in in the book blind sight is 2020 uh, which i recommend i have it i own it and uh, I have it in my little pixels, uh, my Kindle, uh, so I can carry it around everywhere. Um, and and you should too if you're listening to this. Um, but uh, the uh, print the print edition looks nicer. <laughs> well, no doubt, no doubt. If it doesn't fit in my pocket, um, so you actually reached out. And t t can you tell us um, the pathway towards your finding um, kind of intellectual beacons, I'll call them, and mm. uh, and how you connected with them and how you connected them to each other. And how you kind of saw through to a pathway to, you know, um, put them in a framework for a book. Sure. Uh, it really seemed a psychological necessity, you know, that my, my psychological survival depended on it. Uh, my husband at the time, uh, you know, bless his heart, he was much more cautious and conservative than I was about this. He was, you know, the guy washing the groceries and all that. I think he did that until December 2020. And he was just more scared. Um, mm. But he never shamed me or, you know, he understood how I felt, but, it, but I still couldn't really relate to him on that level. And my kids were more in my camp from the start, but they didn't live at home. So I felt very isolated. And of course, you know, none of my friends um, really resonated with, with the things I was talking about. So I did a few things uh, in addition to, as I said, you know, reading and, and learning about people all over the world, philosophers, bioethicists, artists, scientists, writers who felt the same way. I also um, joined a Reddit community called Lockdown Skepticism, mm -hmm. um, which was actually one of the much uh, saner and more moderate skeptical groups. I mean, at the beginning, we were especially strict. We didn't 
allow any posts that were in any way conspiratorial or, you know, anti-vax or anything like that. You know, we loosened the rules a bit as, as things went on, but we were definitely one of the more moderate groups and, and that's why we survived the great Reddit purge of 2021. So oh, that group- I wasn't aware there was one. Hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, a lot of groups, more, uh, you know, more extreme groups like No New Normal, that was a group that was a little more extreme. They got purged. Um, there was one that was, um, uh, against masks as well, they got purged and, and some more too. And the ones um, that wanted people to be locked down, they, they got purged as well. Uh, <laughs> yes, but um, so this one survived, it's still going strong. And then in September, 2020, I became a moderator. I joined the moderator team. So I sometimes joke, I must be the oldest moderator on Reddit. Um, uh, the We have a team of about 20, maybe 10 active moderators now. And, you know, the next oldest one is, I think, in, in their late 40s and then 30s and 20s. And most Reddit users are younger, but there are, you know, occasionally oldies like me. Uh, but it's fun. And I, I started connecting with that community, with both the moderators. I met some of them. Some, some of them, a couple of them actually lived in Toronto. And that gave me an idea to start a Toronto group, which I did. Um, you know, I started by identifying people on that Reddit, in that Reddit group, there are now 56,000 worldwide group, but sometimes they would identify that they live in Canada or Toronto. And then I would invite them to join this group that I was forming, which I called QLIT, Questioning Lockdowns in Toronto. Hmm. So I uh, invited them to join and then several people did. And then they suggested other people that they thought would, you know, be suitable for the group and we had a vetting process to make sure that we didn't invite any trolls or anything and so the group grew organically and um at its highest it had like about 110 members and and we also had a whatsapp we had three whatsapp chats and i tell you it was unbelievable at the height of the COVID insanity probably in um mid 2001 that whatsapp chat did not sleep like there was between 500 and a thousand messages per day. Three o'clock in the morning, you'd go on, people were leaving messages. I mean, it was just continuous. It was unbelievable. So it obviously was meeting a need in other people too, you know, people who, who felt like me, like us. And so that was gratifying to see. We even had a, um, we even had a Q-lit romance. There was two people who met through the group and started to date, who, as far as I know, are still dating. Um, so, you know, I felt sort of like a Yenta, you know, putting these two people together. Yeah. Um, and so that was another thing. And we, we met in addition to this WhatsApp chat, we would meet in person. Um, we went to some protests. Uh, we would get together for, you know, go out on patios to have beer or whatever. So it was very, very uh, uplifting and sustaining. Again, it was um, what would help me maintain some semblance of sanity throughout this whole thing. And then there was also the, um, you know, writing articles for various outlets. And, you know, when I discovered Brownstone, um, I wrote several articles for them. And then Jeffrey started this Brownstone Writers Group, uh, mm -hmm. which I guess you belong to. Mm -hmm. And that was another source of community. Mm -hmm. So really, community is the solution to things like this. Yeah, no, it's been, it's, it's true. You know, I, um, you know, this Groucho Marx line, I would never belong to any club that would take the likes of me as a member. Right. <laughs> Right. But but I do like playing uh, squash, so <laughs> I, <laughs> I I joined one and I I, I joke um, that the guy who took me in, you know, because I I'm kind of politically on the right, and um, <clears throat> we live in a, a a place where all the fruits of capitalism 
uh, let people have the ability to, you know, have the, the funds to keep clay courts and all that kind of stuff. But there's very little almost appreciation for the, the mm. as a modalities by which people have got, achieved their success to the point that anyway, my, yeah. almost everyone's on the left. And and we we house a bunch of, you know, people with uh, credentials after, you know, uh, um, MDs, MD, MD, PhD, we, uh, a lot of uh, PhDs and so forth. And so they, we, we formed a, we, they formed a, mm. a COVID group mm. and concluded that uh, you couldn't play tennis outdoors. Uh, they, <laughs> when, tennis, when they, when they, you know, restarted it, you had to have your own set of tennis balls. So that the, the little fuzzy parts, when you touch, oh uh, my God, somebody else would touch and you couldn't pick up the other guy's ball, even if he served it to your side. <gasps> oh you, my God. And they, they got rid of the benches oh my God. because, I don't know, benches outdoors and indoors. Uh, you have to wear a mask when you're playing squash with, with like 24 foot ceilings. Right. And adults, mind you, consenting adults. And, and pretty much as, as I mean, I'm, I'm not saying and people are allowed to smoke and so forth. But but if you have a bunch of squash tennis players, I, I would say pretty much zero percent of our members smoke because if they did, they wouldn't be playing squash and tennis because they're middle aged and so forth. Anyway, and they're almost all slender because see above. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I, I'll just leave this one story. But at one point, I happened to be there to collect something. I wouldn't. I refused to do that. I told them I'm not going to trade uh, eliminating risk for a, a car uh, for a respiratory problem by by obtaining a, a cardiac arrest. <laughs> and so right. two 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 doctors younger than me, about ten years younger than me, and they were playing. And I happened to be outside one day, and they come <sighs> huffing and puffing outside I'm like. And I, I, I play and squash can be exhausting, but I've seen these guys and they can, you know, play pretty hard, for pretty, pretty long. Anyway, so to cut to the chase, uh, you know, they're like exhausted and panting, <sighs> ripping their masks off and like, wow, that must have been an awesome match you guys had. Like match. We just played one game. And I'm like, oh, huh. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and I, I, I pose them the question, like, you know, what about cardiac stuff? It's like, yeah, yeah, we can only play two games anyway. But. You know the, the absurdities of of trading risks. Now, in this case, they would be trading, you know, presumed. And, and, and mind you, both these guys had already had coronavirus, and they're both mm. doctors, and they both see patients. They're you know active doctors. And I, I mean, because I'm kind of a deep dive on stuff, I asked, I, you know, do you guys? The other one in particular, I, he's my neighbor, and I'd spoken to him earlier, and I said, uh, you know, now's a good chance to stop wearing masks, huh? Because um, <laughs> he sees children. He's like, no. I said, well, do you think you're going to give it to kids at this point because you've already had it? And he said, no. And uh, it's, you know, anyway, I asked all the logical questions and no, 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 no. Um, I said, well, why aren't you? Why don't you stop wearing? Wouldn't it be a good sign for kids that there's a there's a, a you know a light at the end of the tunnel if you survive mm -hmm. yourself? Because this is the 2020 before um, vaccines. And he said, no, it's not the right time because you know basically because we have to get rid of Trump. Um, <laughs> You know, right. I'm just Trump derangement syndrome, right? As they call it. Because politically it's not the right <laughs> And that and I, I I you know we had a long talk about this. I'm like, how can you put <laughs> that's that's a great quote. It's not I mean, because of, of mask aerosol properties or because of transmission dynamics, because we have to get rid of Trump. <laughs> well, he did not literally say that. He said it's not politically the right time. We're waiting right. for instructions. Well, like Democrat leadership will tell us when. And there's a whole bunch of and this was to keep, you know, to have the the, the mail-in ballots and all this kind of electoral stuff. So he he's political, you know, and anyway, they're huge political motivations. And and for my taste, that that's 
you know, that's sacrificing the doctor patient relationship. Mm. Uh, I think that has to be an individual thing, not a collective. Again, see about if there's a zombie apocalypse i think we all have to kind of bond together nuclear you know bomb i get it you know if yeah. there are situations which for which my threshold will be met I'm right this. yeah uh, and i i've thought about that a lot as well just the tension between individual agency and collectivism i mean that was a huge theme it's a big theme in the book as well and as you say I mean, there are, there are situations again i'm not an absolutist so there are situations where i would say okay um you know, I was never in favor of this lockdown, but I could tolerate it um, intellectually, mentally for a couple of weeks, even a month or so. It's just this lack of an end game. Mm -hmm. um, but all, there's also the other argument that if, if there was a zombie apocalypse, people really would not need to be convinced to lock down. Um, right. Yeah. Moreover. Yeah, that's a good point. And more, you know, that's a whole concept of lockdown really only ever having been, you know, played out in prisons. Yeah, I mean, they had, you know, people talk about the closures in the Spanish flu era and so forth, but they were much more targeted and limited. And, you know, it wasn't this, you know, global one size fits all. You so know, so well, let's get back to this intellectual journey in a sense. So you contacted, um, I, I might mispronounce his name, Mark Changizi. Um, mm -hmm. And you, you spoke with, I assume, Matthew Crawford and, um, and who, whom else? And, and what were the kind of uh, uh, ideas you gleaned and, and what's the what's the reverse pathway? I mean, your, your title is Blindsight is 2020. So let's say we could have 2020 hindsight and mm. been blinded. Um, what were the what were the dicta that you got and what were the kind of the kernels of truth or not uh, mm -hmm. that you received? And, and how, how would you have re-navigate this and and where would you put the hierarchy of who said what and who was, you know, more nearly correct? Uh, well, that's a, you know, big question uh, with a, with a long answer. But I think, what comes, yeah, what, what comes to mind, and this was iterated by many of the people that I talked to. Uh, by the way, I, did, I wasn't able to interview everyone that I feature in the book, you know, mm -hmm. maybe half, of them, maybe about 20 people I had personal interviews with. The others, I um, gleaned what they were talking about through uh, podcasts, video interviews, newspaper mm -hmm. articles, magazine articles and such. But I did interview uh, Mark Changizi. He was great. And um, one of the themes, one of the recurring themes is that in this pandemic, it was decided that we should listen to the scientists, listen to the experts. But by experts, people just meant scientists, epidemiologists and public health experts in particular. And that, and I will say, I remember this distinctly from day one, that struck me as flawed. And the experts I spoke to corroborated that, or the people in the book, um, because a pandemic is not just a scientific problem. It is not just a problem of containing a virus. It's a problem of getting human societies through an upheaval that affects every branch of their lives. So just listening to epidemiologists is is absurd you know i i said on day one where are the mental health experts where are the economists where are the historians where are the um sociologists uh you know where are the bioethicists where, where are the philosophers the, where are the, you know, where are the, you know the, i think there's a spiritual aspect there was a guy uh absolutely 
there's a I, I forget his first name. I think it's, it's I think it's John MacArthur out in California, who said that you know people. Uh, I'm Jewish. I'm not a Christian, but I respect. I'm also Jewish, by the way. I guess you saw that in the book. Yeah. No, I didn't. I I, I, I skipped over that. I guess. I mean, you yeah, said I'm, Yenta, you said Yenta, but that that's almost. Oh yeah, yeah. Weird. I'm not not a very good Jew, but I am one. General lexicon, but but um, he he said you know people's spiritual needs are real, and mm -hmm. they need to be attended to. And, and we see that. I mean, you know, people not attended to die. You know, yeah. behavior diminishes. We, when we were uh, young, uh, my wife and I, um, our, you know, first, our, my older son was was babe, and and we decided was I don't know, we took a week off. We went to France, and he was uh, probably a year, uh, year maybe I don't know year year and something. Anyway. Um, and we had a lovely time and it was a huge break for her and she'd been under a lot of stress and so forth. Um, and we'd left him in good hands with my, um, my sister-in-law and, you know, he knew her and so forth. Anyway, he, we came back and he was, he'd been fed and all this kind of stuff, but he regressed. Mm. Uh, it, was, it was notable and behaviorally he, and he wasn't talking and, and his, you know, all his hygiene stuff, we're not going to get into, mm. um, change and so forth. And it, it took months. No, that was that was that, and he wasn't in solitary. He just wasn't with us for mm. uh, a week and just a week. Um, mm. But you know, we are not computers. Uh, we don't have on-off switches. We, um, you know, have, have we? Well, I, you can call. I mean, spiritual is a tough thing, but but there there is, we have needs that go beyond mm. just um, our you know mere creature comforts, and 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 we have connection. And and those those things were 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 yanked from us. I mean, even, even with the plant, who doesn't yeah. doesn't quite have our our sensory our mental abilities, you know, you transplant them and they don't you know they do very poorly. I mean, you give you know it, it, these are hugely um, you know speculative uh, experiments that were performed on on the entire society, and 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 seemingly in lockstep towards lockdowns. Um, the the, the I guess the question I would have for you is, you know, the people who um, who felt similarly as you did, you know, on what basis did they get that, and and how did they maintain strength when when kind of vilified, um, and and I don't know, what was your general sense about this kind of emerging uh, community? Well, I think I come back to what I said before that the only way you can uh, survive this kind of thing if if you were on the outside is by forming your own communities, you know, and, and organizing in some way. And, and that was so validating and healing. Um, but to come back to the religion question, I think that that's interesting because I, I myself am not a religious person. I, my, my, you know, I can see the, can see the, the draw, the appeal, but my mind is just wired to doubt, you know. Um, even if I have something that feels like a religious feeling, my mind is wired to go, okay, well, that's just your, your biology at work. Mm -hmm. So that, that's just the way my mind is wired. But having said that, um, during the pandemic, I came to understand more than ever before um, sort of the religious perspective. Um, and I really came to see that for some people, religious communion really is a need. And to just yank it away you know, is, is not okay. And I even came to understand, um, you know, the the ultra-Orthodox uh, Jewish communities in, in both New York and Israel, who had seemed somewhat of an alien species 
to me before. You know, I say that with no disparagement. They just seemed very different, living in a different world, even though my mother was raised Orthodox. But, you know, to me, I couldn't relate to them at all. But then during the pandemic, when they started to talk about, when they started to say, we will not comply. I talk about this in the book too. And, um, and they were interviewed by the mainstream media and, you know, of course, vilified and uh, disparaged. And, and they explained that to them, they see studying Torah as um, healing, as healthy. And they were not going to deprive their young people of that. So, you know, I really kind of admired and, and related to that in a way that I never had before. First of all, they were prioritizing their young people. And second of all, they were saying, you know, there's more to getting through this than, you know, focusing on this one viral threat. Uh, so, you know, it really expanded. I felt that it expanded my own um, understanding right. and appreciation of the religious perspective, even though I don't really personally share it. Right. Well, fair enough. I mean, I, I think when you brought the categories of, of types of things other than, say, medical, you were talking about mm. sociology and psychology and all that kind of stuff. The interesting thing about religion is that it, it is one of those, say, categories or compartments about uh, yeah. behaviors operate, but it is not necessarily state purchased. Um, and I think the big disappointment has been um, the, when I call it, I mean, there's two, there's a couple different ways of looking at the word schooling. Um, schooling is the way we get our knowledge in a sense, and it's kind of the aggregated knowledge passed on. But there's also uh, my favorite quasi analogy is, is that fish school. Now, <laughs> right. <laughs> fish wake up never having seen in, in the ocean, never having seen a parent. And because they, you know, their their eggs get thrown out, the guy kind of rips over with his his uh, sperm, and and these things hatch, and you know, ninety something percent of them don't make it past a couple of days, if mm -hmm. that, and 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 they're wandering around, you know, a mouth and a and a and a and a butt ready to you know process, you know, enough to to keep doing that next day. And somehow they know their fish, I guess. And somehow they are able to recognize the, their, their like type. But that pretty much is as far as it goes because their decision-making is, is completely communal and organized. So they, you know, they'll school. It's really a wonderful thing when you're underwater watching them. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also a kind of a terrifying thing if you think how it applies to schooling now. And, and both in the application of public schools and the way that it was withheld and teachers kind of withdrew for their own personal safety and their own interest. Again, see above, you know, grandparent analogy. Mm, yeah. and, and then our professoriate who um, withdrew, um, you know, kind of communally to be schooled and schooling themselves and only acting in lockstep for lockdown. Mm. And this is, you know, a way that, that perhaps only religion was not answering towards governmental grants and, mm. and, and suasion of one type or another, which clearly was operative uh, through the, the mechanisms of, of government. You know, the NIH controls, you know, pretty much all your, every institution, private or public, they're, they're granting. And, and whether it's 100% or not, it, it, it is a, 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 a kind of a, a, I don't want to get too far into this, but but it, it's, it's a decision-making aspect. So the schools don't want to disobey the hand that feeds them. And, and religion, doesn't have that so far. I mean, I think there are states, mm. I think in Germany, they 
uh, pay the churches or whatever. You know, some certain places I think in England they do as well. Um, but but play, you know, ideally you need an independent school, and and you know there have always been religious sects um, that are sectioned off and so forth and finding their own way and their own pathway. And obviously, you know, spiritual journey, but uh, has coincided with help. Um, and you know, I, I, I don't want to do this diatribe too long, but you know, we our kids in school hear about the food pyramid. They hear about this thing: don't smoke. No, you know, then they get condoms or whatever. You know, there, there's actually people live longer when they have community, when mm -hmm. they're married, and when they have, you know, religious devotion. And you don't have to have all those things, but those things coincide. I'm not saying they're causative. Right. But they coincide with longer, you know, with, with greater health. And probably because people abstain more from all the other things that are dangerous. Um, but it's never promoted in schools. Like, you know, think about marriage and religion. Think about having kids. Think about joining groups. Think about religion. All that kind of stuff. It's kind of for all this public health stuff, some of the, the greater determinants of how we live and how happy we live yeah. Yeah. You get the number of days that you might um, is, you know, is, is discarded. Uh, anyway, so I apologize for that diatribe, but. Um, no, but I think it's, it's, it's very uh, germane to, to all this because again, there was, there was this intense and exclusive focus on the biomedical aspect of life. Right. And, I think that I, I've sort of I've thought about this so much. I think that it just rubbed some of us the wrong way for reasons that are real and true and difficult to articulate. But then there's this whole other group of people that I don't know if it's because they were so afraid or because they just have a different world view, but they thought that all these other things can come later. Now we just have to. Right. you know keep as many bodies metabolically alive as possible yeah, you know and i think there, there's a real real profound division there and and again i tried to kind of allude to some of these things in the book but th these are difficult things to to really articulate because they represent ultimately you know two different ways of looking at life and th that's one of the things that i've concluded you know and you alluded to that as well in the grandparent um example two different ways of looking at being a grandparent. And I think that that can be extended just to weigh different worldviews, really. And I think that that's where a lot of the divide, at least in the people, um, lay. Yeah. So I'm going to uh, talk about all things uh, Canadian uh, mm -hmm. for a little bit, um, because uh, what did Winston Churchill used to say uh, about the UK and the United States, that they're two countries uh, divided by a common language. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, everyone knows Canada is just America's hat. Um, <laughs> don't um, tell that to a, a Canadian. You can tell that to me. I don't. You know. I was trying to provoke. Um, <clears throat> how, do, how do things play out in Canada? How are they playing out? Um, what what type of you know rights were preserved? We have the federal system here, where you know states, yeah. Florida got to do diff things differently from yeah. uh, from New York. And and uh, you know Utah got to do things differently from Colorado, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Um, did did things play out on a federal system provincially, um, and how what type of freedoms were retained? And again, maybe speak to my point I said offline, which is about the the, the fault line right. of parliamentary democracy uh, mm -hmm. that that you might have the tyranny of the majority with the emphasis on the word tyranny. Yeah, well, I think we do have a, a similar system in the sense that the provinces have quite a bit of autonomy. Each province has its own health care, um, you know, 
system and jurisdiction and everything. Uh, but there was also this narrative running in Canada right from the start that we are different from the United States and look how badly the United States is handling things with Trump. So we're going to do things differently. And, um, and also in parallel, you know, we are, we are a more caring society. Amer you know, again, the cliches, Americans are individualistic, each person for themselves. We are more community oriented. So all those tropes were, you know, uh, trotted out in, in the narrative. And I think that that influenced or, you know, helped create the Canadian narrative. Um, certainly helped alienate me. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think Canada was one of the places that really went to town, went went crazier than most with COVID. I mean, we had curfews in some provinces. Um, and we had a... Oh, where you are, in, in Toronto. No, but in, in Montreal, my son lives in Montreal now, and, and he had curfews. And, um, and, but we had extended lockdowns, you know, they, they just kept coming back, you know, stay at home orders beyond the first couple of months. And we had a respite in summer and then it came back and then it came back again. Um, so it really, really went on and on way beyond what happened in the States. And then, and then of course, you know, the big surprise is that the truckers convoy happened in Canada of all places, you know, and in some ways this is surprising because Canadians have this reputation for being, um, so well-behaved and polite. And, I mean, even our national slogan is, you know, peace, order, and good government. You know, how boring can you get? <laughs> but uh, so, so, it, so in a way it was a surprise, but, you know, perhaps in another way it wasn't because since the measures had been so extreme, then you can expect the pendulum uh, to swing more to the other side in a certain group of people who just were not having it. And that that was a very interesting chapter I felt in the Canadian history, pandemic history, which I also I address. I have one chapter that's devoted to the uh, truckers convoy, and I supported them for this from the start, which really made me a pariah in my circle. Um, I remember getting together for a family event with some cousins and and sort of letting it be known that I was against a lot of the COVID measures, and then one of my relatives piped up and said but surely you didn't support the convoy <laughs> but I, I told i told him i did you said don't call me, don't call me shirley yeah <laughs> that's right yeah exactly but, yeah right but um the puns are just coming and coming right well that's from uh, that's from that movie airplane yeah yeah but I, and not only did i support it but my you know my son attended the convoy with some friends of his and, and that really gave me a window and i with his permission, I reported on his firsthand experience in the book um, because, you know, he's certainly no racist or any of the ists that, you know, get hurled on us. But he attended and he was really able to tell me what he saw with his own eyes, yeah. you know, and, and all these accusations of, you know, this being a white supremacist and Nazi event and on and on and on. And of course, there's going to be the odd, you know, bad element in a protests like that. This happens in all protests. But again, the left-wing media just ran with all that, oh, I saw a Confederate flag and all this stuff. But that's not what it was about. And in fact, some of us, I've heard some other writers say this, it wasn't even just about the vaccine mandates. I really think it was a bigger moment than that. It was a more general protest against just what was happening in society. So and as a result of this, I mean, my understanding is that a lot of the truckers 
um, you know, had their bank accounts frozen, this and that. Mm -hmm. yeah, um, not only the truckers, but those that donated money to them, which was yeah. unbelievably unfair because when they donated money, this was still a legal cause. And then retroactively, the prime minister decided that it was an illegal um, group. And so they froze the, the bank accounts of people who donated in good faith, you know, which, which is completely absurd. Yeah, no, it's it's an it's, this is an arm of the state, and and just to kind of push back uh, a little bit on uh, the concept of national help, um, I mean, I, I I see that also potentially as an oxymoron, um, because the levers are centralized. I mean, again, I think some of the the you know fault lines or some of the faults um, have been because you know what was Lord Acton said, uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, but uh, between one and the other is the conduit of of money and and coercion, and if the state can tell your university, you know, we're going to cut back all the biology grants for everything because you have this one person who's saying this, which is certainly a capability, and you know maybe uh, we're not going to treat your heart attack this with the same speed if you're not vaccinated, uh, if you're of that type. Uh, I think there's a, you know 18 different ways from Tuesday to to tell people's political type based on on certain discernments of their, you know, how they answer questions. And 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 if, if it's centrally owned and operated, uh, that's one more lever. Um, it was, was, were there any uh, situations in which uh, triage included, uh, say, you know, if, if it were a 25-year-old, healthy otherwise, whether that person had been vaccinated or not? In the U.S., there had been. Yeah. I mean, I, I saw these things in the news. I can't say that I'm um, especially knowledgeable mm -hmm. about um you know these reports so yes i did see them uh in the news at the height of the vaccine craziness you know all right so we're we're heading towards an hour and oh I, wow it's very it's very easy to talk to you it's it's, it's well, nice. i appreciate that thank you i'll tell it to my wife <laughs> <laughs> uh, she's she's been hanging around for the duration we we actually met 40 years ago um and of course we we're only six years old at the time no, so, <laughs> right um, and uh, fell in love instantly and it's been a wonderful ride. And so some, somehow she puts up with me, but um, <laughs> uh, easy to talk to. I don't know. I've got some new one on her. I'll have to have her listen to this anyway. <laughs> but uh, um, I'd like to, to, you know, give people a chance to look a little bit at your book. Um, and so I'm going to uh, maybe share a screen with it, uh, uh, with our uh, viewers. Um, and I'm just going to go over a few quotes that I, I'm not going to, people can pause this if they want to look at them, uh, but maybe you can just uh, kind of give us some closing uh, statements and then I'll, I'll give a screen for your book as well. Oh. Um, yeah, well, what, yeah, one, there, there are so many lessons. Message, say? There are so many lessons to be learned and the most important thing the next time around is to have people from many disciplines at the discussion table mm -hmm. to allow all ideas to bubble up to the surface. The good ones will stick around. And to adopt a more holistic approach to pandemic management. One of the people that I interviewed uh, Robert Dingwall, the sociologist, talked about that, that pre-COVID, England actually had a very sophisticated, multidimensional, holistic approach to managing a pandemic that went beyond just, you know, what do we do about this virus? 
Um, it was about, you know, how do we shepherd the human family through this? And it was much admired in Europe, this whole approach. And again, uh, for reasons that I think a lot of us are, are trying to figure out still, this was abandoned with COVID, this holistic view that takes all the things we talked about into account, you know, religion, uh, making a living, culture, art, etc., etc. So that's what we need. We need a holistic approach right. and we need so, tolerance for different. Yeah. So I, I, I have to give you kudos that, you know, I, I think you have a an excellent foundation in liberal arts. And, and again, the, the term liberal arts, everyone thinks me just means liberal, whatever that is. It's a political mm -hmm. term. But originally, I think the Romans had it as as that which would make a man be able to keep and understand freedom. So it's mm. liberate, mm. so uh, to, to be free. And I think we've lost track of that. So the liberal arts have actually been the pretty exclusive and um, they, they've kind of you know, lost that liberating effect if they become counter to the narrative. So, you know, it. I, you know, I think you, you've clearly um, used your faculties, uh, no pun intended, um, to apply a, a reasonable lens to information and, and be able to critically judge. And that was the whole purpose of the liberal arts, so that you'd have enough foundation to be able to judge for yourself right from wrong, up from down, left from right, et cetera. Anyway, so I'm just going to pop a few of these on, and people, if they want to, they can pause this uh, here and there. Um, these are some of the things that I... Uh, uh, I'm just going to go over them briefly, um, you know, came from the book. This is, you know, about dehumanizing people to the point they no longer want to live. I love this line you have here, uh, um, you know, borrowing from Peter to pay Paul, but in many cases, um, Paul didn't want our money. I, I love that. Um, and yeah, that was, that was speaking about the older people. Um, we were supposedly, we were robbing people, the young people to pay Paul, the older people. But as I explained earlier in that uh, chapter before the quote, the older people often didn't want that kind of help. They didn't yeah. want um, the young people to suffer on their account. Fair enough. So I'm just going to pop a few, a few of these things that I uh, um, uh, cut out, and I'm going to mm. just let people pause if they want. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because it's not really conducive to our, our discussion. Um, I really liked your part about your daughter, by the way. I thought some of your personalizations uh, were just uh, uh, terrific. I'm going to pull these down. I'm, also, I'm going to give people a chance to look at your uh, your book as well. Um, and so here we have uh, uh, here we have your web page. Um, so it's uh, GabrielleBauer.com. Um, you can find her books and probably get through the links to Amazon. And um, uh, yeah, if you if you just look up Blindside is 2020. Yeah. Even even without my name, it'll it'll pop up on Amazon. Um, so here's that that book, and just uh, I, I always end with a shameless uh, self promotion. Um, I have a book as well. It's called Overturning Zika: uh, The Pandemic That Never Was. Uh, it's got uh, so far it's five star ratings. So people come and try to pollute those, I guess. Um, I, I recommend people uh, take a look at this uh, interesting topic. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it right now, but uh, this is the uh, book cover. It's got a portrait of me right here. Uh, <laughs> right. right. Just just uh, right out of Kafka, right? You woke up one morning and turned into a giant bug. Yeah. So I'm going to leave it there. Uh, thank you so much, Gabrielle, for joining us. Uh, you can hang around and chat for a little bit, but we're going to wave goodbye to everybody else. Uh, thank you for joining. If you like this um, um, 
uh, discussion, please share it. Uh, please let us know. Uh, give us uh, possibilities for questions. I'd love to have you back on again. Um, and uh, thank you so much. Well, thank you. It was a great pleasure uh, chatting with you and being on your show. Appreciate it.